if we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. And a good morning to you. Thanks very much for being with us as we get your day started at seven minutes after the hour of nine o'clock on this Wednesday, the third morning of the sixth month of the year of our Lord, 2020. And of course, when I say get your day started, hopefully you did start it with Hugh Hewitt and you continue to us for uh, in-depth analysis of what is going on in this country right now. And uh, we will promise to do this uh, with you and for you, free of the buffoonery you will hear continually on other channels in this market. Uh, But really, seriously, thank you for being with us. We are going to give you the best and most honest analysis uh, and information that you can possibly get. Coming up uh, on the program... At 1010, we're going to talk with the president of the Ohio Fraternal Order of Police. We're going to talk with Gary Wolski. Uh, he has, uh, I've been corresponding with him just a little bit, uh, and just kind of, uh, digitally, uh, over the last few days, and we share information with one another. And I finally said, Gary, we need to get you on the radio and we need you to talk about this because this is getting to be more than just violence. It's getting to be more than just, um, vandalism. It's getting to be more than just property destruction. They're targeting police now. They're targeting police and they are chanting, defund the police, defund the police in multiple cities. They want police departments, police officers essentially disbanded. They don't want to have law and order in the streets, law and order in the country. They want it to be a free-for-all. They are chanting for police officers to literally be decommissioned so that they have no authority and no power over anyone else. It is devastating. It is terrifying. It is mystifying how anybody could possibly think that is a good thing for a for a society to remain civilized, and despite all of the stories that you are hearing over the course of the last week, we are a civilized society. We are a society that does believe in justice. We are a society that does believe in equality, and we are a society that does believe in civility. We are a civilized society, no matter what other people are trying to get you to believe. And when you hear, by the way, and by the way, that's going to be my second guest, Gary Wolski. I don't want to get too far off track here. We're coming up at, uh, uh, at, uh, 935 this morning in about a half an hour. We're going to talk with a former chaplain, uh, a former chaplain of, um, 
of uh, hospice chaplain rather in uh, Houston, Texas. And he, his name is Theo Dixon. He's an African-American, and he has a very interesting and important perspective on the black experience in America through segregation, the New Deal, uh, he uh, uh, to talk about Black Lives Matter, to talk about policing in America, and more. He is a very interesting man, and again, he's a former hospice chaplain who will be talking to us uh, about uh, the role of uh, race and the African-American experience in the United States of America. Now, having said all of that, I want to get into a little bit more about uh, what Gary Wolski and I are going to be talking about, and that is policing in America, defunding the police. This isn't just some random, hey, somebody on the spot in a number of different locations in different cities came up with just, you know, off the top of their head, defund the police, defund the police. If you think that this is random and that this is just kind of off-the-cuff banter and that this is not organized and planned and being uh, run being driven by professional anarchists, then you just aren't paying close enough attention. And I say that not to degrade, but to say, let me educate you. Um, And I want to give full credit, by the way, to a number of people who investigate this for a living who have educated me, including Laura Logan. Laura Logan is an investigative reporter who has done extraordinarily important, deep research into... Antifa, the anti-fascists, as they called themselves, that are pro-destruction of the United States society as we know it today. They are anti-police. They are pro-destruction. There is just no other way to say that. They want to deconstruct the government. They want to deconstruct our republic. And they want to put it together in in a model that is something akin to communism and socialism, and you'll hear, when I give you this list in a moment, you'll understand what I mean by that. Uh, but that is actually a, a far worse version of communism and socialism. So Laura Logan did a lot of the reporting here. And again, she is an Antifa expert. She has spent years digging into cultivating sources within Antifa and revolutionary communists and other organizations. And she has discovered some very, very important things. One of them is the existence of a relatively new group that is in this mindset called the Revolutionary Abolitionist Movement. They're online, and I I read a little bit up on them, and I read a little bit of Laura's work, and again, I'm giving credit to the person who educated me as I try to pass this education on to you. Uh, The Revolutionary Abolitionist Movement is literally organizing and running many of the other groups, such as Antifa Portland and Antifa Denver and Antifa here, there, and everywhere. There are Antifa chapters. It's like a, it's like a strange cancer that does metastasize and spreads to various locations throughout the American body uh, as a whole. Um, and this organization is, as I say, bent on the deconstruction of America by any means necessary including violence, including fires, including murder, and, and, and on down the list. Have you noticed any, and if you're online, you probably have seen some of this. If you're not, if you're not a, a you know, digital person who's doing a lot of online stuff, you may not be aware. In all of these cities, 
well over 100, I don't even know the number anymore, of cities that have succumbed to violence. It started out perhaps as peaceful protesting that, that uh, devolved or, you know, again, I don't want to buy into that narrative. I don't want to say it devolved into violence because violence was brought intentionally to all of these cities. But have you noticed in a number of these cities the violent anarchists who are attacking police with bricks, throwing bricks through windows? Have you noticed the prevalence of those bricks and wondered, where does everybody get all of these bricks? Well, it's just strange because what you're seeing online, and again, if you don't go online, I'll just give you the best description I can, but pallets of bricks have been delivered and placed in the most strategic, random, I use in air quotes, locations. Nowhere near construction sites, just pallets of bricks. And there are videos online of the rioters and the anarchists cutting open the the bands that hold the, the pallets together and taking off the shrink wrap, grabbing their bricks, and going about to do their destruction. Now, how can that be happening organically? How can that be happening accidentally, coincidentally, or any other entity? The fact of the matter is it is intentionally. This is what I mean when I say don't just buy into the narrative that these are people who are frustrated and upset and angry and they have pent up frustration and they feel like this country is unfair and that there's injustice by way of race and so on and so forth and they're just acting out and what started out as peaceful uh, uh, demonstrations turned into these violent things. Really? And there just happened to be a pallet of bricks nearby for all of them to to uh, express their pent up frustration? No. This is organization. This is planned. There are outside agitators, anarchists, Antifa members, revolutionary abolitionists who are coming into these cities and not only starting but continuing. You know, we're we're 8 days in now. And they are continuing to commit the uh the acts of uh, horrific violence, shooting cops, throwing bottles at cops, throwing pallets or brick, bricks rather from their uh, conveniently placed pallets at cops, throwing them through windows, setting fires to buildings, setting fires to churches, setting fires to cars. The worst of which, by the way, was setting fire to a home with children in it and then blocking the fire department so they can't get there to save the children. This is not protesting over George Floyd. This is organized, intentional assault with the intent of deconstructing the great republic in which we live. Now, I'm going to take my time out here at 917, and when I come back, I'm going to tell you specifically about the 10 points of action that the revolutionary abolitionist movement is using. This is the playbook that they are running by. And yes, it has elements of other playbooks you probably have seen before. Speaking speaking of the likes of Alinsky. But this is something that is next level. And it isn't just for a night or two. It's continuing to go on intentionally with a goal of not just getting justice for George Floyd, but deconstructing 
all of American society, defunding and abolishing the police, just like what you are hearing from the chanters in multiple cities, defund the police, with an intention, as I say, of literally taking this country apart and then rebuilding it in their unholy image. I will explain more right after this on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, it's 922. We're talking about policing in America. We're talking about policing and race in America. And we're talking about the very organized movement to destroy police in America. And I mean that literally in every sense of the word, to destroy the institution of law enforcement in America, which is seen by many anarchists as being nothing more than uh, remnants of slave patrol uh, the old school slave patrol, the slave catchers who would uh, hunt down runaway slaves and return them to the plantations. This is, of course, what one of the leading anarchists, Colin Kaepernick, currently being praised, of course, for be, for his uh, uh, his uh, demonstrations over the last few years uh, from the National Football League and even into his retirement from the league, forced or otherwise. But uh, he is the one who used to tweet pictures of slave patrol badges from the 16, 1700s to uh, uh, police badges today. So they're trying to destroy the institution of law enforcement in general, and then they are trying to destroy law enforcement officers quite literally, which is what we have seen over the course of the past few nights. Cops being shot, cops being targeted with all kinds of assault and weapons and beyond. It's not random people losing their tempers out of frustration. It is organized. As they chant, defund the police, defund the police. This is what I'm talking about. I told you in the last segment about the revolutionary abolitionist movement. This is who they are, and this is what they believe in. This is what they are trying to bring about. The ten rules, ten points of action that the revolutionary abolitionist, you could read this on their website, abolitionist movement uh, is operating under. Number one, liberation will be won by any means necessary. So you take that literally, right? Any means necessary, including murder, including arson, including destruction, liberation as they see it. Number two, we will destroy the state, police, military, corporations, and all those who run the American plantation. That's point of action number two. Number three, we will live with dignity in a world without prisons. You see, because prisons are part of the criminal justice system that is inherently racist and unfair to people of color, according to the anarchists, the revolutionary communists, the revolutionary, revolutionary abolitionist movement, Antifa and beyond. So no prisons. It gets better or worse. Number four, systems of punishment will be abolished. There will be no law to enforce, no money to protect. You catch that? No prisons, no punishment for bad actions. None. 
Number five, revolutionary justice will be determined by those who are oppressed. So automatically, this organization has just deconstructed its own argument. There will be no punishment. Systems of punishment will be abolished, and there will be no prisons. But revolutionary justice will be determined by those who are oppressed. So in, in, in the world that they are trying to create, somebody who is oppressed, whether it can be proven or not is irrelevant, there will be no courts. But if somebody says they are oppressed, they will determine what justice will be handed out as a result of that, a consequence of that. But remember, no system of punishment and no prisons. Number six, there will be no government. No person or group will have power over another. In other words, everyone is on their own. No rules, no punishment, no government, no one providing critical infrastructure. No one has power. Number seven, Communities will make decisions about how they live and will make sure that everyone has what they need to have a dignified life. Now, mind you, there's nobody in charge, but somehow communities are going to make decisions. How are communities going to make decisions if somebody isn't organizing the communities? Secondly, as far as making sure that everyone has what they need to live, what is going to stop someone from taking more of what they need, more than what they need to live a dignified life, and they take it from someone else? That's going to be perfectly okay in this world of the revolutionary communists and the revolutionary abolitionists, because there is no prison, no justice system, no system of punishment. Starting to think that maybe they haven't thought this through. Number eight. Land is not property. It is alive, communal, and must be protected. In other words, you don't get to cordon off a, a, a plot of land and say, this is where we live. This is, this is our home. This is, where we, uh, this is what we will build for ourselves. This is what we will live on. No, it's communal. If anybody wants to be a part of your land, your home, your property, they may, and they must be protected. Number nine, this is the ten points of action of the revolutionary abolitionist movement, researched meticulously by Laura Logan, uh, an investigative reporter. She works on Fox News and Fox Nation. That doesn't identify her. She has been doing a lot more than that. But she is an expert in the uh, uh, inner workings of Antifa and organizations like this, which are driving Antifa. Number nine, alongside international comrades... We will destroy all borders for the free movement of people everywhere. So, in other words, the United States will cease to exist. As the United States, it will just be a part of the North American continent. And you can go and come and come and go as you please, wherever you want, doing whatever you want, to whomever you want, because uh, there will be no, revolution, or there will be no uh, system of punishment, no prisons, and no government. And number 10? Militant networks will defend our revolutionary communities. Liberation begins where America dies. Let me read that last one again. Remember, there's no government, and there's no system of punishment, and there's no prisons, and there's no leaders, but somehow somebody is going to lead the militant networks. 
militant networks will defend our revolutionary communities. Liberation begins where America dies. This is the 10 points of action. These are the 10 points of action listed by the Revolutionary Abolitionist Movement, uh, which is guiding a lot of the Antifa organizations which are currently destroying America from within. Remember, liberation will be won by any means necessary was point number one, and that includes what they're doing in hundreds of American cities right now, using the death of George Floyd as their flashpoint. It's 9.30, we'll get some news, and on the other side of the news, we're going to talk to somebody with some uh, experience uh, in the black experience in America, who's going to talk to us about what is being done, in whose name, and where it goes from here. That'll be coming up on 1420 The Answer. To love the God, to fear the flame, and to burn the crowd. Okay, 9.36 now. We continue on AM 1420, The Answer. We're going to come back to the issue of policing in America, the assault on police in America, the assault on the individuals during these riots, and the assault on the institution of policing, uh, with the accusation that somehow, some way, there is systemic racism in policing in America, despite the fact that literally dozens and dozens of studies have been done looking deeply into the racial demographics of suspects, racial demographics of police officers, racial demographics of those uh, confrontations, and so on and so forth. Dozens and dozens, which dispute it wholly. But anecdotally, we have a horrific, indefensible death of George Floyd, and suddenly it means that, yes, it's true, police are systemically racist. We'll come back to that. As a matter of fact, we may talk about that with our guest that I want to introduce now. His name is Theo Wilson. He was introduced to me by a mutual friend. He was a, uh, has been rather, a chaplain in his ministry in the Navy, in uh, hospitals, universities, and police. And he has a unique American experience as an African American who can talk about uh, and uh, maybe educate us just a little bit about what it means to be black in this country through various generations. Uh, chaplain Wilson, thank you so much for your time this morning. How are you? Hey, well, it's good to be, it's good to be on the show. Well, I appreciate that. So, um, as obviously we have a mutual friend who introduced us who said that you might have some really interesting things to add to the national conversation about race. And I want to start with this question. As an African American, can you tell me, do you believe the United States as a whole to be an inherently or systemically racist nation? From a, from a standpoint of world history, uh, it's, it's, a part of history, um, but it's not, it's, no, this is a great nation. This is the nation that allows people to rise to become the president of the United States. To suggest that uh, we're so racist that that uh, this is the worst country, there wouldn't have been a Barack Hussein Obama. That's not possible. Uh, a lot of white people voted for him because they wanted to make sure that they gave the statement that they were not racist. So, um, yes, we do have racism uh, here in the country. We have a lot of other sins also in the country. In mm-hmm. fact, the Bible tells us clearly that none, none of us are righteous. No, not one. That's why Jesus was sent to die on the cross for the remission of all of our sins. 
And I think when we look at it in that capacity, that racism is a sin, but there are also other sins, like uh, the inability to forgive, that's also a sin that will keep people out of heaven. Uh, very, very well stated. Um, there is a movement in a number of American cities, including the one that I, we live in here in Cleveland, um, and there's a movement actually at the state level as well to declare racism to be a national health crisis or, or to be a public, excuse me, a public health crisis in the city and then at the state level and perhaps also at the national level. But uh, they're calling it a health crisis. Again, as an African-American and as a man of God, um, how do you, how do you um, explain that? Or how, how, how would you describe the, the, the state of race in America and, and its, its branding as a health crisis? Well, I think our health crisis has come by uh, our desire to take the Bible out of schools, prayer out of schools, to efface the name of God and His glory for what He has done in terms of His grace in the nation away from uh, many of our memorials. Uh, that's our spiritual crisis, which has led to a health crisis. We've actually elevated or put on the altar of ism. That is a higher altar now than the altar of worshiping, uh, you know, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And as a result, all of these things kind of come our way. We don't need to look any further than the book of Deuteronomy when Moses was talking to his own people, and he said, listen, God loves you. And on this day, if you follow his, his way, he will bless you. But if you decide to turn your back from what he's done for you, then the curses will, will, will follow. And so what we have in our nation is uh, you cannot, I think Dr. Jeffers, he wrote a book, uh, the title slips my mind, but he said that basically when, when you turn your back on God's word and God's will and God's way, you can't expect that God is going to continue the blessings to flow. Um, I think this COVID is, is, is a plague that has plagued us, but it's been a beautiful time for people to come into their home, to stop, look, listen, find more about their children, learn more about their life, thank God about the fact that they're, they're okay. And, and you know, um, so the challenge that we're doing, people are making things so political that uh, we're looking to a political uh, sort of God, small g, as opposed to God, big G, uh, for the solutions of a lot of our problems. You know, you mentioned Chaplain. We're talking with uh, Chaplain Theo Wilson. He's been a Navy chaplain, hospital chaplain, university's police, as well as part of his ministry. When you um, when you talked about our history, when I asked you if we are a racist nation, and of course, the stain of slavery on this country, you know, will always be there, as it will be on countries all across the world. I think it's one of the great misnomers uh, that a lot of people just who don't study history think that you know hist uh, slavery is a you know, historically, uh, an American institution and an American only um, peoples have been enslaved by others for the history of history, uh, including in you know in in you know with with the Jews uh, in Egypt, um, Hebrews in Egypt. Um, mm -hmm. But but so having said that, we had that period of time in the United States as so many other countries have, and we were complicit. But since that time, hundreds of thousands, just in the Civil War alone, of white people died to end it, 
died to to free African Americans to erase slavery, and then after the uh, after the Emancipation uh, Proclamation, in the you know the years that followed, there was still terrible, terrible racism that was practiced. Obviously, terrible plights and more. Thousands and hundreds of thousands of whites died uh, to end that, and they died to end Jim Crow, and they died and fought very hard to pass civil rights laws. Exactly at what point do you think, Chaplain Wilson, um, would, would, will people have considered the debt paid, the debt of ancestors, uh, again, we had nothing to do with, but so many people gave their lives to make things right. At what point will the debt consider to be paid? And now kind of everybody, you're on your own. The opportunity is here for all of us equally, as you pointed out, to rise to the highest level, you know, position in the land, President of the United States. At what point is the debt paid and we are all kind of even and let's go forth? Well, I think the major problem uh, for us is our, our educational system. Uh, you know, another part of, of my life has been uh, in the edu- Christian education, charter school education as an academic consultant. And I tell you, you know, one of the things that I've learned through history is that when you look at many of the great leaders in the African-American um, experience, especially immediately after slavery, what did most of them do when they got free? Uh, you look at Booker T. Washington, he set up a school. You look at the first uh, senator, he was a Republican, the first black senator during Reconstruction. He actually left the Senate to become the president of Acorn, Alcorn uh, University, one of the historically black colleges. Mm-hmm. So you look at uh, uh, Josiah Henson. Uh, he was the sort of the person that Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote her book, Uncle Tom's Cabin on. And when he escaped and went all the way up to Canada, what did he do? He started a school. And the reason that that was so much and so important to many of the people of that time and then later on is because they realized that ignorance is what perpetuates a state of slavery, whether it's the shackles that are on the arms and the legs or the shackles that are on the hearts and the mind. And if people don't know that they can actually... Uh, move to higher heights, then they, they wallow in misery and they blame other people for it. If they, all you need is God's Word, because when God says it, it must be true. I mean, you, you, you can go to Russia, and, you know, Peter the Great, he had a servant that was a slave. They called him eventually cannibal, uh, meaning cannibal in, um, in Russian, and he became Russian nobility. He became an engineer, a military mind, and his uh, his grandson was uh, was Alexander Pushkin. So here's the guy who was a slave, becomes part of even Russia, becomes part of the nobility because through his education, it lifted him to a higher height that he never would have been before. So I think part of the problem is, is when we have schools that are failing, that, that are talking about that we are victims all the time, as opposed to victors, then people are going to have the wrong mindset. We go back to the book of, book of uh, Genesis and we look about Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brother. He was a field slave and became so good at that that Potiphar made him the house slave. 
he was wrongfully accused of aggravated rape, which he should have been executed for, but they didn't execute him because they knew he didn't do it, languished in, in Pharaoh's prison, and then became the prime minister of one of the greatest empires of that time. So God gives us a blueprint that even if we have been given a short deck, that we can still play it and have a, a you know royal flush, just like those that were the red tail. But if you don't know the history, and if it's not taught, and people don't want to go back and, and, and look at the bad as well as the good, then when, when future generations get around, they can't handle the bad. Here's one more thing. That was a murder that happened, uh, you know, just the other day. That we to George Floyd, yes. Television. Right. Correct. It was a murder, okay? That, that it, was, it, was, it, it just broke my heart. But during the period of slavery, anytime there was an infraction on a slave, all of the slaves on the plantation were required to watch whether it was a man or a woman be, be stripped down to the waist and whipped until they could stand. They were whipped till unconscious. Mm -hmm. They all saw that daily. And yet, many of them, when they, when they got out of slavery, they became great leaders. And many of them were actually, some of them were actually fighting on, for the Confederacy for their master because they loved them in a Christian way that the master didn't even know how to love them in a Christian way. That's history. It is an incredible history. Uh, we're talking with Chaplain Theo Wilson. Um, Chaplain Wilson, one more question uh, about today's police. I, I, I kind of started in uh, to this segment by, by referencing dozens of studies, which I'm going to get into in more depth next half hour on this program. But dozens of studies, including one uh, two years ago by, or actually, no, it's been four years now. It's 2016. Wow. Um, a, a, a economist um, in at Harvard did Harvard a study. Yeah. yeah, did did a study uh, in which he wanted to prove that police was policing in America was systemically racist. That African Americans were treated more harshly and more, uh, you know, quick to be shot, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, shockingly to him, as he pointed it out, he said, "I couldn't believe the results." In fact, the truth is that if anybody uh, is is uh, treated a little bit more unfairly, it is actually whites who encounter police in deadly force situations. Mm -hmm. He is coming out with a new one. I just read this this morning. There was a great article by Jason Riley um, in, the, I think it's in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, it's the Wall Street Journal. He said, Mr. Uh, uh, Fryer, Roland Fryer, the economist, and his co-author, Tanaya Devi, have done a new study, and it's an extension of their earlier research, and they found exactly the same thing, but with much more depth that there are, if anything, there are anti-white disparities when controlling for race-specific crime. So I, I bring all of that up to ask you, the obvious question here is, why is the horrific murder of George Floyd, and I'm with you, it was exactly that, 96% of Americans, according to a survey that I saw, wanted that uh, uh, police officer arrested and charged with murder immediately. There was unity in this country, 96% for crying out loud. You never get 96% of people to agree with anything. But uh, but but that horrific situation has led us to a point now where 
everybody is proclaiming that the science doesn't matter, the numbers don't matter, the statistics don't matter, the studies don't matter, because of this horrific thing and other cases which were absolutely not accurately portrayed, such as Ferguson, Missouri, that policing in America is inherently racist and anti-African American. So how do you view it, having been somebody who served, uh, you know, again, in a ministerial position with police? How do you view policing in America in that regard? Well, first of all, let me say that this is my experience, having been on a police and uh, community relations commission. Mm -hmm. Uh, As a senior pastor, when I was asked by the governor of Rhode Island to be on that commission, that statewide commission, it was because uh, Sergeant Cornell West was actually shot. It was a blue-on-blue shooting. He was off-duty. He was going to help his buddy uh, apprehend two perpetrators, and one of the officers thought that he was one of the perpetrators as he had his gun drawn, and he was shot. And uh, it was about to be a major riot in Rhode Island. When I got on the committee, I didn't want to be on the committee. I was asked to be on it for the sake of the community. I was on it, and when they, they were teaching us about how the police are trained. Uh, that was an eye-opening for me. Okay, I realized that in the police, they, that when they shoot, they don't shoot somebody in the in the hand or on the foot or in the arm like you see in the western movies right uh if they have to draw their gun it, it's going to be you know it's large it's going to be head or heart um, center mass so, center mass is what they're always taught you you don't right, shoot to so, try to wing somebody in the leg which is what by the way i apologize for the interruption but joe biden actually said yesterday that we should teach our police to shoot people in the legs if you well, need that, to draw that, your that, weapon that, it's for a, it's a, for a life and death situation and correct. you don't you don't you don't go hitting somebody in the leg meaning they can still stay stand or fall down or whatever and shoot you back you if you have right. to shoot somebody it's because they are going to kill you they're going to kill you so that you, you it's it's you're drawing first Right. So that was eye-opening for me. But let me tell you, as a police chaplain, before I was a police chaplain, I, black man, not because I was a black man, but I was in three different counties in one particular day in Ohio, and I was pulled over three times. Now, the reason was is my license had just expired, like, on, on the Friday, and I was going to get it renewed on the Monday. But mm-hmm. it, I had a, a, a expired license. Mm-hmm. Now, I was upset about that, but... And it was legitimate that I should have been pulled over. I didn't say, what you pulled me over for, you racist cop. And as a result, even though it was three different counties, there wasn't any confrontation, and I wasn't beaten up. Now, that was just me. Maybe it's because I knew, knew about that being on a commission, and I knew that not to accelerate things. Another time in Stowe, where I was a pol- eventually a police chaplain for, I was pulled over. It was late at night. Uh, they thought that I might have been inebriated. I had been driving for 10 hours, and I was extremely exhausted. They pulled me out of the car. I had to put my finger to my nose and do the walk and everything. But, again, I didn't get irate. They didn't know me. I didn't know them. I was just I just followed, went on in my way. A third time in Stowe, in the, it, it, during on Saturday, um, I was teaching my daughter how to parallel drive. My son was with me. And someone in the neighborhood called the police, and they were coming on over thinking that there was a black man. or They were responding to somebody calling. They, you know, so they're responding right. to a call. And uh, it just is, oh, Chaplin. Oh, sorry. We were called over here. And that, and, and that one is an example that they knew. But the right. point was, in, in each situation, 
there wasn't an escalation. Do you understand what I'm saying? I now, do. In this situation that we and, and that's a lesson, and I apologize for cutting you off again, but we're, we're past our time here, uh, Chaplain, but, but that is a lesson that I think every American, no matter what color you are, needs to be, ta- needs to be taught about encounters with police. It should be mandatory right. before you get a driver's license how to not escalate a situation, even if you feel like you've been pulled over or confronted Correct. unjustly. We'll talk about that perhaps another time. But Chaplain Wilson, thank you for your perspective on all of these things, and thank you for the work that you do on behalf of God as well. Thank you, sir. God bless you. I I appreciate that. Uh, That's a chaplain who has been all over the country uh, preaching the word of God and preaching uh, the word of tolerance for one another as well. Uh, It's 9.55, right back after this. Rioters in hundreds of American cities are judging police. Rioters are targeting police. Rioters want to defund the police. But is anybody actually listening to the police? That's what we're going to give you next. The president of the Fraternal Order of Police in the state of Ohio, Gary Wolski, will join us. And we're going to talk to the police and we're going to listen to the police next on AM 1420, The Answer. This is AM 1420, The Answer. WHK, W273DG, Cleveland. A service of Salem Media Group with your local...